You may be seated. Well, we've made it out of John chapter 6. I feel like that's a bit of an accomplishment. (laughs) We've spent a lot of time in John chapter 6. And this morning we begin looking at John chapter 7, and this is not another single event that will occupy nearly two chapters, well, two chapters in the Gospel of John. And so 7 and 8 will be, inter, chapter 7 and 8 will be introduced to us today in this one trip that Jesus is going to make back to Jerusalem and then have extensive teaching in the temple there, as we will see, face great opposition and mounting threats against his life. So there is, in this introduction, the realization that there is an intense hostility that has been growing towards Jesus for quite some time. Now, John does not deal with this in any great length. He seems to pick particular events and use those to reaffirm who Jesus is, in the kind of animosity that existed against him. And so we're going to see here in chapter 8 especially that the Jewish leaders are out to get him and they really want to end his life, his ministry, his influence. And we'll see a bit of that in this passage, but it will come much more obvious as the time goes through John chapter 7. So John doesn't record everything, but the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, give a lot more attention to this period of time in Jesus' ministry. And they also indicate why the hostility has grown against Jesus during this time. From the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he called out the religious leadership for their hypocrisy, for their legalism, for their traditionalism. In Mark chapter 2, he accused them of blasphemy. In Mark chapter 7, he accused them of adding to God's law. In Matthew 3, he calls them a brood of vipers. In Matthew 5, he calls them unrighteous. In Matthew 15, he calls them hypocrites. And so there's only so much of this that they're going to hear before they reach their breaking point. And at this point, they're nearly at their breaking point. There's already, as we've seen in John chapter 5, a desire to get Jesus. And so it has been growing for some time. There is a furious disliking that is growing against Jesus to the point of hatred with the real likelihood of ending his life, which, as we know, is exactly what takes place. In our passage here today, Jesus is talking about his commitment to stay within God's divine timeline. God had a plan. God revealed that plan to Jesus, and Jesus followed that plan to the letter. It's interesting that Bill would mention the idea of providence And that's really what we're talking about in in great detail here is this providential plan that God the Father has for Jesus the Son and his commitment to live out that plan exactly as the Father has instructed. Galatians 4.4, we read, read these words, When the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son. It wasn't just an arbitrary time for Jesus to come. It was the precise moment that the Father wanted the Son to come. And so Jesus' ministry has been lived out, his life has been lived out, following to the letter exactly what the Father's plan for the Son is. So just as he came in the fullness of time, so he acted in the fullness of time, he died in the fullness of time, he rose in the fullness of time, and he will come back in the fullness of God's time. All of Jesus' life and ministry is based in this one reality 
to do what the Father told him to do, to say what the Father has told him to say, exactly when the Father has given these instructions. So let's look at John chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13, and we'll divide this up in two major sections this morning. So we begin in John 1, chapter, excuse me, verse 1. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. Therefore, his brother said to him, Leave here and go into Judea, so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. So Jesus said to them, My time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it, that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. And having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. Verse 10, but when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him, and some were saying, he is a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. So the first section we're going to look at here is the wrong time. And again, as we're thinking about God's divine timeline, his perfect plan, we introduce this passage in these two chapters with the wrong time. The first thing we see here is this transition that is just glossed over In this one verse, after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. So after these things means that some time has elapsed from the end of the feeding of the 5,000 and the lengthy discourse on Jesus being the bread of life. And it is likely that about six months has actually passed. We can get a timeline on this because... When we were introduced to the teaching on Jesus being the bread of life, it was about the Passover. Here we have the Feast of Booths, which takes place six months after the Passover. So Jesus is about six months from making his final trip to Jerusalem, where he will subsequently be crucified. So in this glossing over that we see in John, because he's not concerned with giving all the details of Jesus' life and ministry, it's likely that Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written earlier, and all of that was already available and was widely known. John has a different purpose than what it is that he records as God has prompted him. So what was Jesus doing in this six-month ministry period? Well, he was ministering in Galilee. It says that he was, he was no longer willing to walk in Judea because of the hostility there. It wasn't that he was afraid. It wasn't that he was unwilling in the sense that he didn't want to go there. He just knew that it wasn't yet God's time for him to enter into the region of Judea and go into Jerusalem and bring about the end of his life and ministry. So he was traveling and ministering through the rural areas of Galilee. And Matthew chapter 15, it indicates that during this period, he performed the miracle of the feeding of the 4,000. Now, it's interesting that some scholars, quote-unquote scholars, 
think that this is a repeat of the feeding of the 5,000, but the setting is very different from what we studied in John chapter 6. And so he has fed the 4,000, a second miraculous feeding that Jesus has done. And we see in Matthew chapter 17 that he was casting out demons as he was traveling in these rural areas. So that was a part of what Jesus was doing, was he was ministering to the people in Galilee. Secondly, and most importantly, he was teaching the disciples. Matthew's chapter, Matthew chapter 16, 17, and 18, and we're going to look at this in the sermon application time, emphasize what Jesus was instilling into the lives of his disciple. He told them of his rejection. He told them of his impending death. He told them of his resurrection. And these are things they didn't want to hear, but they needed to hear. They needed to be prepared for when the time came that Jesus was going to ascend back to the Father and they were going to have the responsibility to fulfill the ministries that the Father was giving to them. Also in this time is when Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on the mountainside and they beheld his glory when he shone like the sun and was transfigured and they got to see that. What an amazing sight that would have been, I would imagine that that would have made them greatly excited about the inauguration of the kingdom that they were still looking for in a political, social Messiah. Jesus poured his life into these 12 individuals, and this is a part of what was taking place in the final, leading up to the final six months of Jesus' life. They weren't just his helpers, They weren't there to take care of the details. They were his disciples that were going to carry out the plan of the Father. What was the command that Jesus gave as he ascended back into heaven? We know these verses by by heart, don't we? We repeat them regularly. It's the Great Commission. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus came and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, meaning there is no other in the heavens or on the earth like me. I have all the authority, and here's what I'm telling you to do. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So as we looked at in John chapter 6, 5 and 6, Jesus spent about two days with this mass of people, numbering in excess of 20,000 people, most likely, but he's now spent six months pouring his life into these 12 men. He didn't command them to have mass meetings. He commanded them to make disciples. They wouldn't be able to carry out that great commission if they were not thoroughly prepared by Jesus himself for the ministry that he was giving to them. The purpose of the church isn't to grow numerically, although the church should grow numerically. The purpose of the church is to grow spiritually and to make disciples. If we go and make disciples and we are baptizing them, it means there's conversion taking place as a result of our discipleship. And then we are to teach them to observe everything that Jesus has commanded. This is the mission of the church. This is the mandate For the church, two things that we note in this great commission. The first is that we should be discipled. Now, don't make the mistake of thinking that being discipled is a six-month course and you get your gold sticker and you are now officially a disciple. 
Being a disciple, being discipled means that you have specific relationships in your life that help you and encourage you in your walk with God. That's what it means to be discipled. We read in Ephesians chapter 4, I didn't make it, I'm sorry. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the statue, stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That is our responsibility as disciples of Christ is to be discipled in our walk with Christ so that we are growing up to the fullness of Christ. That doesn't end with a course. It doesn't end with a class. It doesn't end with a one-year intensive study. It is a lifelong pursuit to grow in our relationship with God. God has given the church gifted people to help accomplish this task. It is the goal of reaching to maturity. What is maturity? It isn't making it to 60 or 75. It isn't getting your 50th spiritual birthday. Maturity is simply being conformed into the image of Christ. It is obeying God's Word in a way that pleases Him and honors Him. It is doing what He has called us to do. It is serving Him. It is making disciples. The second thing that we get out of this mandate to the church is that we should be discipling others. We have to reproduce ourselves into other people. Before we can reproduce ourselves, we also must be reproduced in. Somebody has to help us in our walk with Christ to grow so that we can be disciple makers of other men and other women. What is the greatest proof of our maturity? It isn't the number of verses that you memorized. It isn't having perfect attendance for 30 years. The proof of our maturity is in the lives of the people that we have affected as a disciple maker. We have to ask ourselves this question. How long have I been a Christian? And how many people have I helped grow in the relationship with God to the point that they are growing in their maturity, not led a Bible study, not taught a class, but affected people's lives with the truth of God's Word in such a way that they were being conformed into the image of Christ. You and I are likely here today as a byproduct of somebody else's disciple-making. That doesn't discount the call of the Spirit. It doesn't discount the work of the Spirit. But the reality is God has given human beings to the church for the purpose of carrying out His plan in our lives. That is through the teaching, the encouragement, the fellowship, the challenge, the accountability. All of those things are factors in the disciple-making process. So we have to be discipled, and we should be discipling other people. We are the product of someone's discipling, or we are the product of not being discipled. It's just the way it is. So Jesus, in this transition, was walking in Galilee. He was avoiding the spotlight, focusing on preparing His disciples for His imminent departure. He was not in Judea because it was not yet God's plan, but that time would be coming very, very soon. Number two, we see the setting. That verse two reads, Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, 
was near. The Feast of Booths was known as the Great Feast. It was also called the Feast of Tabernacles. There are three main feasts that every Jew is expected to participate in in the course of the year. The Passover in the spring occurred during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This feast marked the start of the barley harvest and remembered the exodus from Egypt and the blood of the land that had caused God's wrath to pass over the houses of Israel where the doorposts were washed in blood. The second feast is the Feast of Weeks, which is what we're looking at here, or the, excuse me, or the Feast of Pentecost, which took place in the summer, seven weeks after the Passover. Here the offerings of first fruits from the early summer wheat harvest were brought to the Lord. The third and the great feast, the one that the Jews celebrated the most, was this one, the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, which marked the completion of the harvest season. Now, you and I think of the Passover as the greatest feast because we associate that with Easter. We associate that with the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. But for the Jew, it was the Feast of Tabernacles that they celebrated the most. Leon Morris says it like this, Tabernacles marked the successful completion of their labors. The harvest was in the barns. The people could relax and rejoice. It was the feast for an agricultural people. So it was a very exciting festival. They would build stick shelters, temporary shelters, and they would commemorate the Exodus journey and the living in the wilderness in these makeshift houses or in these booths. It was a national campout where everybody came to Jerusalem to celebrate the completion of the harvest. So this is what's taking place in a time marker for John in this chapter. Number three, we see the request that is made of Jesus here, verses three through five. Therefore his brother said to him, Leave here and go into Judea, so that you so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he him, when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers were believing in him. So John is introducing us to Jesus' half brothers, the natural children of Joseph and Mary, as we see here in verse 5, they were not yet believing in him. So the request that they make is, go to Judea and show yourself. If you're doing all these miracles, if you're performing all of these, um, if casting out all of these demons, if you're feeding all of these people, teaching all of these things, don't do it quietly, do it publicly. That's what you should be doing if you are who you say you are. You should seek to make yourself known. So this is what they are instructing him to do. So James and Joseph, Simon and Jude are Jesus' known half-brothers. James and Jude are authors of New Testament letters that we have. And they want Jesus to go go with them to Jerusalem for this big, spectacular entrance where everyone is going to see Jesus. Some think that they are perhaps taunting Jesus or challenging him. Others think they were tempting him into a dangerous situation because they were tired of hearing and seeing all that was going on. And still others would view this as a worldly encouragement for their super-religious family member to go and be known. Whatever the motive, the worldliness of this advice coming from these brothers is very clear. If Jesus was determined to be a religious leader, he ought to advance his interests publicly, and there's no better time or place to do that than at the Feast of Tabernacles. So this is what they want him to do. Now, this advice they're giving 
bears a strong resemblance of the attitude that we looked at of the people in John chapter 6. Remember, they were physical, not spiritual. They were temporal, not eternal. And this is very much how these brothers are acting. The unbelieving crowd wanted worldly results. Jesus' unbelieving brothers advised worldly methods. But that was not Jesus' commitment. Jesus was determined to do what the Father told him to do at the moment the Father told him to do it. He had heavenly goals, and he knew that they could only be achieved by godly means. This worldly encouragement that we see here from the brothers is reminiscent of the temptation that Jesus experienced in the beginning of his ministry when Satan appeared to him and tempted him to use his divine power for self-serving ends without thought for obedience to God. Jump off the pinnacle and see if God will send the angels to rescue you. Jesus didn't do that either, did he? He had a divine timetable that he had a commitment to. Jesus doesn't cater to the selfish desires of unbelievers. He remains committed to God's plan no matter what, and he knows that it's going to be achieved in God's time. So here's his response that we find in verse 6. Jesus said to them, My time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. Jesus says, It is not yet my time. It would be about six months until Passover would come again, and then it was going to be Jesus' time. Jesus would then spend time in the Judea region, his entrance into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And there he would make the open declaration of who he really is. And this, is, this would lead to his death, as we well know. But that time had not yet come. So likely his brothers had in mind the kind of joyous and triumphant entry that we know Palm Sunday to be. As unbelievers, as doubters, as skeptics, they were unconcerned with God's times, God's plans, God's purposes. All they could think about what made sense to them. Jesus says to them in the second half of verse 6, but your time is always opportune, meaning that if they were making the claims that Jesus was making, this is what they would do. Hey, brother, if I were you, I would go to Jerusalem, the Feast of Tabernacles, have a grand entrance, and make no mistake about who the people thought I really was. You see, they have no sense of divine providence for the unbeliever. There's no sense of God's timetable. Everything is random. Everything happens by chance. It's all coincidental. Life is random. It has no purpose. It has no meaning. Just do as you please. Do what makes sense to you. And hopefully it will work out well for you in the end. But there is a time when every believer will understand God's divine timetable. And unfortunately, that is the time of death. Hebrews 9.27 It is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes Judgment. You see, when we pass from this physical life, we are instantly going to be held accountable to the Father. Our eternity hangs in the balance. And there are going to be some sad, sad people who are going to stand before the Lord and say, Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, perform any miracles in your name? And what is he going to say? He's going to say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. You see, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is, in fact, the Lord. They will have an understanding of this divine providence 
but they don't have it. Pre-conversion, everything is just random. There's only so many hours in a day, so many days in a life. All of us live with numbered days, and we have no idea how many days those are. And as Christians, you and I are on a divine timetable, just like Jesus is. Our lives are lived in the scope of God's providential plan to accomplish His purpose in each life. And we just don't know what that timetable looks like. Sometimes we want it to go far, far away. Sometimes we want it to speed up really quickly. But things happen in our lives in God's time. That's why we are to make the most of this time that we have. Because God has given us a limited amount of time to do His work, to be conformed to the image of Christ, to make a difference in the lives of other people. We are to live our lives in view of this divine timetable just as Jesus did. So Jesus affirms the worldliness of his brothers at this time. He goes on to say in verse 7, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. The world does not hate them because they belong to it. This is exactly what Jesus is saying. They belong to it and they are aligned with its purposes. We'll see this again repeated in John chapter 15. Verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. You see, the world loves people who think like it, values like it, lives like it, and anybody that pushes up against that is going to incur the dislike and perhaps even the hatred of the world. Why does the world hate Jesus? Well, because he exposes the sinfulness of the world. John chapter 3 19 and 20, as we looked at several, several weeks ago. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. And so the world hates Jesus. Make no mistake about that. The world hates Jesus. That's why Bible's taken out of the school, prayer's taken out of the school, God's taken out of the public arena. It's a criminal act to serve God in the public arena unless you have previous authorization. Why? Because the world hates Jesus. He says in the second half of John 15, 19, But because you are not of this world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. You know, the disciples all died martyrs' death. Why? Because they hated them because they were aligned with the priorities, the values, the purposes, and the truth of Jesus Christ. This is why the world hates anyone who stands for God's truth. We shouldn't be surprised by the world's antagonism towards Christianity, but we are. Christians are about the only group that you can publicly Libel and slander without expecting some kind of backlash. We're about the only group that you can get away in doing that. We shouldn't be surprised by the world's antagonism, but sometimes we are. And I think this is why many times we're afraid to give ourselves completely to the purposes of Christ. Because we don't like to be hated. Most people want to be liked by as many people as they can. And many people will go to great lengths to do everything they can to ensure that. 
Now, if that means compromising in their walk with God, many people will do that. Well, Jesus is not concerned with the advice of his brother. So he says in verse 8, Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. And having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. So Jesus understands very well the divine timeline that he is on. He's not going to compromise that to please his brothers or the religious leaders or anybody else. So he encourages his brothers to go, knowing that at this point, for them, there is no significance in their journey to Jerusalem. Now, Jesus didn't say that he wouldn't go. He said that he wouldn't go now. He would not go in the manner that his brothers intended because it was not yet his time. And as we'll look as we go through the remaining parts of 7 and 8, Jesus did go to the festival and he did appear publicly and he did teach. So it wasn't like he went and did his religious duty and then slept away. Jesus went. Apparently God the Father prompted him to go according to the divine timeline. So that concludes the first section that we have. The second section we see here is the right time. Verse 10, But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. So the first thing we see here is Jesus' visit into Jerusalem. He did go in the Father's time, in the Father's way, not as he was being encouraged to do, not afraid to go, not unwilling to go, but committed to go only in the way that the Father intended, at the time the Father intended. So he went quietly, with no fanfare, as if he was going in secret. He just kind of slipped in and did his thing. He didn't come with the big group. There wasn't a lot of fanfare. There was no public attention drawn on him. But his next entrance into Jerusalem would not be quiet. It would not be filled with, it would be filled with jubilation. And all of Jerusalem would know without a doubt that Jesus was in fact here. Number two, we see the reactions. John records two reactions in this intro into what we're going to look at through the remaining parts of seven and all through chapter eight. The first reaction we see here is from the Jewish leaders, verse 11. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? The Jews here is intended to mean the religious leadership, not the Jewish people as a whole. John will address them in just a moment. So the Jewish leaders were thinking about Jesus and talking about Jesus even when he wasn't around and they were expecting him to come. He has been a thorn in their flesh, a burr under the saddle, a rock in the shoe, whatever you want to call it. They were thinking about him, they were bothered by him, and they were waiting for him to arrive because they wanted to get a hold of him like they've not been able to do at this point. They're not looking for an autograph, they're not looking for another message. All they want to do is deceive him and put an end to his ministry. They were well aware of the claims that Jesus has been making about himself. Although they've seen the many miracles that he's created and performed and undoubtedly have to give some credence to them, they reject his message, they reject him and his person as the Messiah, the bread of life, the one and only, and so they want to get him and put an end to him. The second reaction we see here is from the people in whole. Verse 12, there was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying he is a good man. Others are saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. So Jesus' life, it's been going on two and a half, three years. His ministry, his teaching is well known amongst the people. He's not a secretive figure. He's not just all of a sudden showing up. People know who he is, and they've already been formulating opinions about him. 
And even though his teaching hasn't begun at the feast yet, he is on the minds of the people because they have seen and they have heard what he has done. Grumbling here, if you remember, is translating as muttered complaints and whispers of displeasure. So it's not an exciting thing that's going on. There's, there's some concerns and some problems. And so we see there are mixed reviews of him. The first review is, he is a good man. It's a favorable opinion. They're aware of his miracles. They're aware of his helping other people. And apparently they aren't overly concerned about his teaching or the claims that he's made about himself. The other review of him is that he is a deceiver. The accusation is that he's leading people astray. This becomes the prevailing view of the Jewish people, of the religious leaders especially. But as you look at these two reviews of Jesus, he's a good man or he's a deceiver. Both of them are actually incorrect. Jesus isn't a good man. Jesus is the God-man. He is the one and only Son of God. Good men don't claim to be God. Good men claim to be helpful to other people. He's the one and only Son of the Father, sent to do the Father's will according to the Father's plan. And he isn't a deceiver because as a deceiver, he could not do the things that he has been doing for these two and a half to three years. Quite the opposite. Jesus is not leading people astray. He's leading people to the only way that anyone can get to the Father, and that is through Him, the one and only Son. Verse 13, Yet no one was speaking openly of Him for fear of the Jews. Now, it's very clear that the religious leaders have rejected Jesus, but an official, an official opinion has not yet been rendered by the Sanhedrin or the Jewish council. So because of this, the people were very careful to vocalize their own particular opinion in fear that the religious leaders would disagree with that and the consequence of that would them being thrown out of the temple, being excommunicated from the people, and they would live as outcasts for the rest of their lives. It shows you the kind of control and the fearful leadership that existed within the Jewish leadership during Jesus' time. So the reactions begin in anticipation of his, of his arrival. Some say he's a good man. Some say he's a deceiver. The Jews are openly hostile to him. Nobody's saying anything out loud about him because they're afraid of what the Jewish leadership might do. And as this account in John's Gospel illustrates, Jesus followed God's timetable perfectly. He always did God's will exactly how the Father had instructed him. Now, you and I, as disciples, have the same ability, although not perfectly, we have the same ability to follow God's will because God has given us His Word and He's given us the Holy Spirit to empower us to do all that God has commanded us to do. His Word informs us of the will. His Spirit empowers us to do the will. Unbelievers do not have that capacity to understand God's Word or the willingness, or the desire, or the ability to follow it. When you think about the enormous amount of people who have witnessed Jesus' life and seen what he has done, and the very, very small percentage who received him, as I stand here today, 
knowing that I am one of the minority, one of the very few. I'm incredibly thankful for what God has allowed me to know about himself. I'm a first-generation Christian, didn't grow up in church, didn't have Christian parents, didn't have Christian grandparents. Yet God allowed me to know the truth. We take that for granted far too often in our lives, and we shouldn't. We need to think about the people on the outside of the four walls of the church who don't know the truth and be committed to share that with them, not knowing whether or not God will or won't open up their hearts to that truth. But being one of the few, you and I ought to have an incredibly thankful heart for what God has done for us. Would you join me in prayer? Father, as many times as I've read this passage, it still boggles my mind of the animosity and hatred towards Jesus. And even today in our world, people want to keep him in the manger. Nobody's threatened by the baby Jesus. But nobody wants to deal with their sin. Nobody wants to deal with the necessity of the cross. Father, what an incredible gift it is to know the truth, to have been changed, to become the forever people of God, to be the bride of Christ, to be the body of Christ, to be his inheritance. We acknowledge our unworthiness of that. We acknowledge that we don't deserve that. But it's out of your goodness and your grace. Father, as we continue in our study of John, would you take away the familiarity? Would you cause us to see the greatness of the God that you are like it's the first time we've ever seen it? We pray that you would capture our hearts and our minds in a way that would forever change how we pursue you, how we surrender and serve you. Father, thank you for your enduring love your endless mercy and grace. So we as your people, we stand here today and we give thanks to you, the God of our salvation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.